Yo, 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 what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the podcast called Getting to Know God. This is the place where we look to the scriptures and only the scriptures to know the one true living God of the Bible, letting him speak for himself in his word through the Psalms. I'm Brandon, also known as Pastor B-Side, and today we're going to look at the attributes of God as the Lord describes them in Psalm 6. The title for our study today is called Praying with Wisdom. But real quick, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that if you've been digging on these studies or the things I do as a ministry, please hit the like button, share button, and make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast. Sounds silly, but it really helps to make sure that this teaching can be more easily found for the folks who need it when we play that algorithm game with social media, right? The more action and activity that social media sees, the more likely it is to recommend it to others. And at the end of it all, it really helps us bring glory to the Lord, making sure more people know the truth. Amen? All right, so enough of that. Let's check these verses. In Psalm 6, the Bible says this, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So pretty crazy that I read you the subscript to the chief musician with stringed instruments, right? That This is a worship song. Doesn't quite sound like the ones that we're accustomed to hearing in church, right? But check it out. It's really important that we understand the things that are being said here, especially as they deal with praying with God's wisdom. The Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A lot of people have interpreted this to mean that we should simply honor God and respect Him, and by extension, we will receive wisdom that's helpful for the decision-making we need to have throughout the course of our lives, right? Well, that kind of explanation is kind of an oversimplification of this concept, the fear of the Lord. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it literally refers to terror and dread. The original Hebrew word that's used to describe the word fear is also often translated into the English word terror, right? It's, I've never heard terror and respect used in the same sentence to mean the same thing. Not me personally, right? So this means that the Bible teaches that the key to gaining God's wisdom is to legitimately be afraid of God. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God to the extent that we're unwilling to approach Him or that our fear separates us from Him, like it did Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that's not what it's talking about. This produces a good result, right? Instead, the fear of the Lord means that we should be afraid of the consequences we would face if we approached God the wrong way in our natural condition 
or ignored him altogether based on our understanding of his supremely glorious, righteous, and holy nature. I mean, when you see the people of God encounter God in some way in Scripture, even as the people of God, the Bible shows that those dudes were straight up scared, like they fell down trembling in terror because of the incredible brightness, holiness, and just indescribable greatness of God. I mean, think about how the children of Israel responded to the manifestation of God as thunder, lightning, and a massive cloud that consumed Mount Sinai while Moses was up on the mountain getting the law. They, they couldn't handle it. They wanted him to stop, right? The Lord is scary when we think about the true extent of how different he is from us in terms of his glory, his righteousness, and his holiness. The fear of the Lord entails our understanding of God about these things, as well as the threats we face if we deny God, reject God, or offend God. Since God is so glorious, holy, and righteous, we should treat him a certain way. It's true that God is gracious, that he's merciful and loving, but he is also just and righteous. God does not show mercy at the expense of his righteousness by just dismissing offenses committed against him or guilt without fair justice. There's consequences for sin, and those consequences have eternal implications if we don't address that problem the way that God commands. And again, since he is supremely glorious, holy, and righteous, we better obey those commands, otherwise we suffer consequences that he is also faithful to administrate. Even the children of God have some tough days, right? And that makes us a little uneasy sometimes in our relationship with God because of the sins we continue to commit. So this is a tough subject here, and that's why the Lord is helpful to put these things in Scripture, to give us some insight, some encouragement, and some good direction. But the Bible teaches that for the true child of God, this uneasiness that we have from time to time because of sin is actually a good thing. It's good to be afraid of God. The testimony of King David in Psalm 6 shows that David struggled with the same kinds of issues. David, yeah, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also straight up scared of God in some ways. And the Bible actually commends that fear. That's why we have Psalm 6. It's an example to us of the good and proper way to be. A lot of people forget that David's sin against God with Bathsheba, that wasn't his only sin. The scriptures teach that even righteous people fall at least seven times in a day, and that's a good day. David wasn't an exception. The Bible might have highlighted certain mistakes of certain people in scripture, but that doesn't mean that those were the only faults that those people committed as an offense to God requiring judgment, right? The Lord sees everything. And so we got to understand there's a lot more to this issue. Psalm 6 shows that there was something bugging David in his life that caused him to be afraid of God. He feared God to where he pleaded for his mercy. That's how he opens the psalm. The Bible doesn't show what that issue was, though, but the manner of David's approach to God shows that he was like legitimately afraid of the consequences of letting whatever that sin was linger around. David was so scared and rightly so, that he was pleading and literally crying to God. So Psalm 6 is a good illustration to show that the wisdom that the fear of the Lord provides is often expressed through prayer that communicates our repentance and a pursuit of God's mercy. In other words, 
When we fear the Lord the way the Bible says, that fear gives us wisdom to seek God in humility in order to gain his favor through his mercy while confessing our faults and shortcomings so that we don't continue to live as an offense against him as our normal habit of life. And that's where the Lord wants us. That's where we become fruitful servants with the benefits of our salvation, being joy and peace and all those other things that we're all seeking, right? So again, Psalm 6 begins with David saying, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now, that's a profound way to begin prayer. And remember, this prayer was supposed to be played on an instrument like a song. I mean, this is well beyond the blues here, you know? Here it's important to notice that David didn't despise God's rebukes and chastening, and we have to make that distinction, right? A lot of people hate God's punishment. David wasn't saying that here. The Bible explains that God rebukes and chastens those that he loves. So David feared God's rebuke in anger, right? It's one thing to get hit. It's another thing to get hit by someone that's angry. And you definitely don't want to get hit by God when he's angry. David was afraid of the quality of God's chastening if it came in the temperament of hot displeasure. It's a good thing to fear God's anger and hot displeasure, right? David was considerate and mindful of his conduct and his attitude so that he wondered if he had fallen out of favor with God and by extension was at risk of experiencing God's anger and hot displeasure or wrath, right? Now, this fear was healthy because it led David to plead with God, expressing wisdom by seeking escape from God's wrath. That sounds wise to me, right? Seeking ways to escape God's wrath. The good news is that the Bible teaches us that God's people are not appointed to wrath, but this is the mechanism that God uses to teach us that, right? If we're going to pursue God to become his children when we are then separated from his wrath, Psalm 6 is kind of suggesting that he's going to show us our own sin to scare us of his righteousness and the consequences of our sin, which causes repentance so that we become his children, then separated from wrath. Before you want to be separated from wrath, you have to understand the reality and the severity of God's wrath. That's what's being described here. Verse 2 plainly shows what David's focus was all about in this prayer. He says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. So David pleaded with God for mercy. He knew that the only way he could gain favor with God and escape the threat of judgment was through God's own mercy. David didn't try to do anything to impress God, you know, to make up for his sin or or do any works at all. David knew God well enough to know that God's favor comes to those who seek his mercy and humility. David considered God's wisdom to understand his faults. David considered God's power that he could administrate any time to discipline David, knowing those faults. David considered God's righteousness to know that God doesn't let sin slide without some kind of consequence at some point in time, right? And the scriptures are pretty clear to testify of the consequences that David often had to experience because of his sin. David understood that God is holy, and the only way to please God was in holiness. But then David also knew that he was not holy like God. So, David sought God's mercy, knowing that the conduit of God's own character was the only way 
to escape the threats that he faced regarding his own sinful condition. David confessed his weakness. He didn't have the ability to please God or to change his own condition by his own wisdom and power. David explained that his bones were weak, referring to the physical pain he was experiencing. Whether this physical pain was directly related to his sin or not really doesn't matter. The point is, David's pain was such that it came from his bones. It was deep. It was intense. Kind of reminds us of like Job, right? David confessed that he was unable to address his own issues because of this weakness, but his pursuit of mercy from God shows that David understood he wasn't worthy of help from God. David might have had pain comparable to someone like Job, but didn't speak of God with the same self-entitled attitude that God rebuked in Job later at the end of the book of Job. And the reason why is because David also confessed the pain of his soul. Look at what it says in verse 3 again. It says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? So David admitted that though his body hurt, his soul hurt more. This reference to his soul shows that David recognized some inward things about himself that were an offense to God. He feared the anger and hot displeasure of God because it was uneasy in his soul because of sin. And that's where sin stems from, right? We might say something stupid and evil. We might do something terrible that's offensive to God, but it starts in the soul. It starts in the heart. So what sin are we talking about here? Well, since the scriptures don't say, apparently, it doesn't matter. Sin is sin, and we all have it, period. So regardless of our perception of the quality of sin being committed, here David doesn't refer to any of that, which leads us to believe that any measure, any quality of sin to any degree, however we perceive it, is problematic. And that's a good thing to consider in terms of the motivation we need to fear God. David's soul was uneasy with the threat of God's wrath being ever-present before him because of his sinful nature. David knew that the only remedy to this internal discomfort and infection in his soul was God's mercy. David didn't seek worldly affections or things to distract himself from the internal convictions God was placing in his heart. David didn't try to ignore his sin, you know, to, to numb the sin or to cover it with entertainment, right? David attacked these issues that God was putting in front of his face. And he did it with prayer, humbling himself before the mighty hand of God, the very hand that would have been justified to destroy David's life for the offenses that were already committed against him, right? So it's interesting to see that while David is seeking mercy, here we see evidence that because he's still alive, having committed sin, he's already received a certain measure of mercy. And that's good news. But David didn't run from God because of this fear that he had of God. David wanted restoration. He went after the Lord in all humility. Verse 4 goes on to say, Return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me for your mercy's sake. So sin had caused internal grief, fear, and even physical ailments for David. So David cried out to God to restore the relationship that he wanted to have with God, a better one than one founded on these convictions that were causing all these issues, right? The Bible uses the testimony of David here to show how we all need God's own deliverance and salvation, which comes through the conduit of mercy to have a healthy relationship with God. There's no other way that that takes place. David didn't try to perform religious acts to try to please God or to gain his favor. 
David didn't sign up for everything in the church bulletin or on the church app and schedule to try to be charitable, doing all these works to gain favor from people as if that would impress God, right? David knew that God and God alone was the one that would restore the relationship that he wanted. It would be God's strength and wisdom, and by his deliverance, that would enable David to return to a peaceful relationship that he had with God before his sin was put on blast and put in focus. It would be God's own salvation that would enable David to return to the contentment he had before his sin was put in the forefront of his mind because of the convictions that God placed in his heart. God's deliverance and God's salvation come by God's mercy and only his mercy. If we want peace within ourselves, we need to have peace with God, and this is the way it comes. It comes from the fear of the Lord. Psalm 6 shows that David's fear, it provoked wisdom just like the Bible promises, and that wisdom compelled David to desire God's glory, not his own glory. And this is a big deal here. It's subtle, but it's a big deal. See, sometimes we think that our glory is going to bring us peace. It doesn't. The Bible shows that God will show us our sinful issues to scare us about his judgments, which gives us the wisdom to humble ourselves and then desire God's mercy. While seeking God's mercy, we learn to value God's glory as we learn that God is glorified by the deliverance from sin that he gives to us by his power. That's how peace comes. David didn't seek God's mercy just to escape his physical discomfort. David didn't want to be restored to God just so he could feel better about himself. Oftentimes, people seek God's mercy just so they can be comforted with a change in circumstances. We often seek God to give the good things that he gives without caring very much for God himself. Our cries to God and demands from him are oftentimes simple reflections of an internal desire for a simpler and more comfortable life so that people will be impressed with us. <laughs> that is not why David sought God in Psalm 6. Instead, the Bible says, Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? David sought a restored relationship to God so that he would be properly equipped to glorify God. Now, how many of us can say that, like truthfully, 24-7? None of us, right? This is crazy here. David didn't seek escape from his circumstances so that he could be satisfied in himself, indulging in worldly and fleshly comforts, which unfortunately is how many of us approach the Lord with our demands in prayer, which means that we're not praying with the same wisdom that we see here in Scripture, which is probably a part of the reason why a lot of us don't see our prayers answered as often as we think they should be. And look, I'm talking to you as one of the chief offenders in this issue. This is hard stuff. David was a servant of God and the king of Israel. Let's remember that. Now, his job was to serve the Lord's purposes as the king of Israel, providing an example of God's righteousness to the people in Israel for God's glory. That was the job description. That was his life purpose. When he was called as a boy, you know, a shepherd boy to be king, this was the reason that God called him. When he was equipped to defeat Goliath, this is the reason God empowered him. When he escaped all of the pursuits from Saul, this is the reason why God enabled those victories, right? When he kept slaying all the enemies of Israel to expand their borders and receive the praises of Israel, this is why. It was to glorify God as an example of God's own righteousness for God's own glory. David knew that the only way he could do that job was if he had God's own ability to do so. 
David knew he needed God's own righteousness to show God's own righteousness. And he needed to be connected to God by faith in humility in order to have access to that righteousness. If David was disconnected from God because of sin, David couldn't do his job to bring glory to God in his leadership of Israel. And so what happens if David doesn't do that job right that God called him by name to do? It's a bad situation, right? So you can kind of you know, understand the intensity of David's cries here and his focus and why he had so much understanding of not only the Lord, but the Lord's purpose for him according to what God said in his word. David's restoration was not for his own personal sake, even though he would escape God's wrath if he was restored. The bigger issue was God's own integrity. David wanted to be restored and put back to good use for God's glory and for God's own namesake. David knew that his restoration and his encouragement that was received from God would provide a good testimony of God's mercy, which would ultimately exalt God's name and character to all the people around him who were paying attention, right? David knew that he was not very useful to God to bring glory to God as a servant to Israel, right? If he was dead, (laughs) none of us are. David didn't necessarily ask for all of his pain and discomfort to go away, only that he would be well enough to survive and fulfill his purpose. David recognized that if he died, his opportunity to glorify the Lord through his leadership in Israel, it would be over. If David was dead because of the consequences of his sin, he wouldn't be able to serve the Lord's purposes here on earth anymore, which means he wouldn't be able to glorify the Lord to the people of God anymore. And it makes God look bad because here God had this glorious purpose through this covenant that he made with David. And if he dies because sin cuts that short, not only does that make David look kind of bad, but it makes God look bad. And David understood that, that if he died in a displeasing condition with God, it's game over. He's dead. That's it. There is no second chance in that regard. Whew, talk about wisdom. An even bigger issue is the eternal implications of death. David, fearing God's wrath, knew that if he were to end up, what the text says, in the grave, which is Sheol, which is hell, God is not praised there. God is not worshipped there. So we see that David didn't want to be anywhere where God's name was not praised, exalted, and worshipped. It's not that he was afraid of going to hell. That's not what the text is saying. What it is saying is that David didn't want to be anywhere where God's name was not praised, supremely exalted, and worshipped 24-7. David wanted to escape his sin so that he could continually participate in the work that God does to exalt his name in this world and the next, and then spend time eternally with the people of God to glorify God's name forever. That was his chief desire, and he didn't want to be a part of anything that might compromise or corrupt his ability to do so. Talk about the right perspective, right? This is the quality of wisdom that the fear of the Lord provides. It's amazing to see how David was afraid, but that fear, it changed his life perspective to consider eternal things like this and his life ambitions to desire worshiping God more than anything else. He didn't want to live so that he could get married or get rich or solve this problem or go to the beach or, you know what I'm saying, do the prototypical kind of worldly human things. No, he wanted to keep living to make sure he could finish the job that God appointed to him 
to bring as much glory to God's name as humanly possible. Whoa. This is the fear of the Lord. The testimony of Psalm 6 also shows how David expressed his humility and fear outside of his prayers. He confessed that his pain was super intense, so much that he groaned and cried in the night, filling his bed and couch with tears. Now, when you think of couch, I'm not talking like, you know, some kind of lazy boy or anything like that. Just listen to what it says. In verses 6 and 7, it says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. So obviously there's a little bit of embellishment here in poetry to emphasize you know, the intensity of his internal grief, right? And we all have the habit of doing this. This isn't to diminish what the scriptures are saying, like they're exaggerating. It's to give us some insight into the truth of his internal, you know, just pain. Now, the first thing we have to recognize, though, is remember who wrote these words, right? This is the same David who just went after Goliath with three rocks and a slingshot, right? who went head first into other battles like a crazy man and won. <laughs> here, David, though, was, he didn't seem to have any fear there. But here, David is so afraid of a tainted relationship with God because of his own issues that he publicly admits how he cried profusely. And now it's in scripture <laughs> for all of us to read some 3,000 years later, right? David was one of the toughest dudes ever in scripture. But here we see he's crying like a baby when the thought crossed his mind that his relationship with God was corrupted, soiled, or adversely affected, right? That is a true man of God. Now, before we go any further, let's keep these things in mind, right? Because a lot of us, if, if you're like me right now, I'm thinking in my head like, dang, Lord, I got no chance of measuring up to something like this. Well, here's the good news. that The Bible teaches that all Scripture is breathed by God, meaning inspired by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that provoked David to pen these things, not just about himself, but of course he's documenting the influence that the Spirit had in his life. This character and this quality of faith that we see in David, it came from God, right? It came by his Spirit, which is the same Spirit we have now in this new covenant era of God's work. So if you're concerned that you can't measure up to this, the good news is you can't, and neither can I. But the same spirit that provoked David to live this way and feel this way and think this way and walk by faith this way is the same spirit that dwells in us. So keep that in mind. This is the wisdom that the fear of the Lord provokes, especially in prayer. Still, it's important to notice that David cried at night on his own by himself. He wasn't like the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus referred to, right? Rebuking them for disfiguring their faces to look humble in front of other people, only to be prideful in their hearts. David hurt physically and spiritually, but he didn't seek to draw attention to himself, to dump on people just so he can gain pity from other people, right? He cried to God and to God alone, seeking God's mercy and God's mercy alone. There's no religious works to perform. There's no set schedule or time for his prayer, no audience, just David and the Lord one-on-one, -on -one, a pursuit of mercy, and all humility. That's all it takes. That's what the Spirit provokes. And at this point in David's prayer, he makes an interesting statement saying, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So here it's clear that David wants nothing to do with sin, 
those who are practitioners of sin or those who encourage sin. And you see this consistently. Like, you can go back and listen to the recording of Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and see that that is a constant theme that David is always referring to. Fearing God's judgment, David didn't want to have anything to do with corruption or wickedness of any kind. Now, it's possible that those who were around David were the provokers of the sin that he is referring to that he committed. It's possible that those who surrounded David during this season of his life were bad influences, discouraging him in his walk, which caused this friction and this fear because of the conviction. In that light, it's clear to see that David wanted those sorts of things removed totally from his life. He didn't want anything discouraging to his faith, his walk, or his connection to God. David knew that bad company corrupts good morals, just like Paul writes later in the New Testament. Those things couldn't be a part of his life in any way. That's what he's expressing here. This is the wisdom that the fear of the Lord provokes. Our fear of offending God is so great that we don't want anything that does, you know, offend God to be around us because we know how prone we are to attach to it and connect to it. So also notice how we're learning about these things, you know, about humility and the fear of the Lord through the wisdom that God provided to David in his prayer. This goes to show that prayer isn't just a time where we pour out to God, but it's also a time where he pours into us so that we can learn about him through the things that his spirit puts on our hearts here we see oftentimes in conviction, that's praying with wisdom. When David rebuked the iniquity that was in his life and the manner in which it came, he was suddenly filled with hope and confidence. <laughs> David went on to say, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplications. The Lord will receive my prayer. It's like David's relationship to the Lord was immediately restored according to God's mercy. Even though David's circumstances probably hadn't changed between verses 8 and 9, he was confident that God indeed heard his cries anyway. Even though David's pain probably didn't go away as he was writing one letter to the next, right? He was confident that God heard his supplications and he would receive his prayer and respond in time accordingly. The testimony of Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, for example, proved that David's confidence was, was true. In that portion of Scripture, you see Old Testament saints crying out to God for vengeance against evils that were committed against them back in Old Testament times. And even though they cry from the depths of Hades, God hears them. And so then you get the rest of Revelation, where chapters 8 through 19 document God's response to those prayers. So, to be confident that the Lord hears and will respond at some point in time, that's the right kind of confidence. David was confident not in the quality of his prayer, and sometimes we think that's what it takes, that's what makes the difference. Well, if I pray good enough, or if I find someone to pray for me who prays really good, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not what the Bible's teaching here. David was confident in the integrity of God's nature and his character because of what he knew about God based on his faith and understanding in the testimony of God in the Word. David went to God, pleading for God's mercy, because he trusted that God is actually merciful and that his mercy endures forever, like the scriptures say, and that he forgives the sins of those who seek him humbly. Why? Because that's what the scriptures teach. David's confidence and assurance was imparted to him from God because of his displeasure for the sin in his life and the sinful people around him that God taught him about, and it caused him to clearly see the goodness of God that not only leads to repentance, 
but encourages a broken and humble spirit. And so for this reason, David knew exactly how to deal with his enemies that hurt, that threatened and discouraged him, and his walk with the Lord. He asked the Lord that his enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Psalm 6 ends with these words, Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So this can be taken in one of two ways, and actually both of them are true, considering the description of David's character and other portions of Scripture. So one possibility is that David had hoped that his enemies would be ashamed and troubled in humility unto repentance. So we could interpret this by seeing that David hoped that his enemies would actually fear God and his judgments in the same way that David did. We, we could make the assumption that David hoped that his enemies would also confess their sin and offense to God in shame, being greatly troubled in their spirit on account of convictions from God, and they would be compelled to seek God's mercy, and they would live and be saved, and now they would be partners and friends with David, right? That's one possibility. The other side, too, though, David also considered the reality that that might not happen. The other possibility is that David prayed that his enemies would be discouraged in their continuing failed attempts to eliminate him and God's purposes for him. Now, both of these things could be true, and both reflect the sort of prayer that reflects the wisdom that the fear of the Lord provides. And that's what the Bible teaches about the one we know as God. He is wise to uncover our sin and put it in front of us to scare us about the consequences. He is merciful to keep us alive just long enough to confess our sin and seek his forgiveness and repentance. He's powerful to turn that fear into a fruitful outcome even before he addresses the specific issues that are troubling us, teaching us about his goodness through our prayer. He's faithful and patient to keep going through this exercise with us until our purpose in this life is fulfilled and we're in his presence. And he graciously brings us into his presence in spite of all the weakness that we show in this life. Pretty amazing, right? So that's what it is. Now, before I get out of here, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder to please take a second and make sure you're subscribed and make sure you share the link to this podcast on your social media and make sure that you're letting people know about what we got going on here. We need all the people we can to know the truth about God and the hope that he wants to give. Hope like this that David had in Psalm 6. Don't keep the people you know from hearing the truth and hope they may need. And also, keep in mind that all of the Bible teaching I do here is 100% listener supported. This means that I depend on listeners like you to pay the bills for the tools that make this stuff available to you, as well as pay for all the time that it takes to study the word and prepare to this degree, right? If that doesn't happen, I can't do this, you don't get this. If this podcast is actually like legitimately helpful to you and you value this sort of teaching, please prayerfully consider sending a donation this way. We're a legit nonprofit. We're 501c3 operating through our parent ministry called Proper Knowledge Ministries. If you'd like to partner with the work of the gospel that we're doing here, you can visit www.pastorbside.com. Pastor, like a pastor, B-side, like the flip side of a record. When you get there, hit the support tab and give any amount that you're able as the Lord leads you. Every little bit helps. And think about this. If the Lord would lead you, maybe even consider partnering with us monthly, making your gift recurring. Kind of like tithing to a church because church is founded on the true teaching of the Bible. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And that's exactly what we do here. Look, we don't have a pew and pulpit and walls around here with, you know, men's and women's ministries and children's activities and camps and retreats and conferences. But 
we need support just like any other to teach the word, right? And think about this, for all the false teaching being shared out there, look, let's partner together and make a strong effort to get more good teaching out there. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the study. Hope you're digging the beat in the background. And until next time, peace out.